You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to Page to Stage. A conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. And that's Mary. Join us as we focus the spotlight back on the theater maker to uncover their process. We speak with folks in the industry that often aren't heard from. Such as stage managers, producers, crew members, marketing professionals. And everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, my name is Barbara Pitts McAdams, and I primarily think of myself as a divisor. Uh, I came to New York to be an actor, like so many of us, and the more I found myself uh, in the kind of companies where everyone is creating the work, the more excited I got by that. And so most people know me as an actor, divisor, director, teacher. Awesome. We met six years ago when one of our mutual friends, Ellen Lancaster, who was my professor at the time, brought you in to do a moment workshop with my uh, freshman class. And uh, we're totally going to get to moment work and your process working on that. But can you start by sharing your definition of devised theater? Mm, That uh, question about what is the definition of devised theater? There's sort of as many definitions as there are people doing the devising. Um, And it's sort of useful to to define it by what it is not. (laughs) It is not generally a practice where you take a piece of written work that's already been created and get in the room and rehearse it. Um, You might come in with a lot of writing that a playwright has created for you or um, other source material. But generally, when I think of devising, I think of it as a process where the work is going to be crafted by the people who are in the room. And for me, that's what really uh, excites me about it, is going into a room full of students, finding out what their virtuosities are, uh, finding out what makes them uh, excited, and creating work that is suited for them. For me, it is um, the most inclusive way you can make theater, because you are designing it for the people who are in the room and want to show up. Does that include designers? Does that include, obviously, the director? Is it really just everyone who is a part of it, not just the actors? Ideally, when uh, we do moment work, we really hope our designers will be in the process. Um, because the, the way that uh, I've been trained and the, the method that I've helped to create moment work, um, it really is looking at all the elements of the stage that can excite our senses, carry narrative, Uh, in addition to the text. So, so often we take a a play and listen, I love rehearsing a play and, and, you know, making theater the typical old fashioned way all the time where you just take the text and then you dress it up with all the elements of the stage. But when we're devising and often the material that we're using, the source material is, you know, what we call non-theatrical source material Um, It wasn't crafted by a playwright with dramatic action. Sometimes finding out what the elements of the stage can do to create theatrical tension can be what's really exciting about devised work. Can you take us back to the beginning of creating moment work? Would you call it a technique or a what, what do you call it? I wonder if there are academics out there who think a process and a technique and a method are all different things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not sure we sort of say them interchangeably. Moment work boiled down is really kind of a lather, rinse, repeat kind of process. There aren't a hundred different exercises to learn. It's really about taking, kind of deconstructing 
theater into its parts. And so you might say, well, you know, what, how can a prop carry narrative? What can, what can I do with, you know, this object on stage that might just be aesthetically pleasing? It might sort of read as a symbol. So a lot of moment work is, you know, we make these little self-contained theatrical moments and then we talk about, oh, how did that read from the stage? That made everybody laugh. That made everybody go, ooh. And, and really trying to understand all the different languages of the tools of our craft rather than, you know, silo ourselves. Oh, I'm just an actor. I'm, I'm the playwright. Oh, we'll fix that in tech. You know, like that kind of siloing that we tend to do. What I loved so much about it when we did the workshop with you was that it really also, as a, as a performer, you're playing with the stage pictures and kind of bringing in some directing into it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, at when you began this process, what did you consider yourself? Were you well, just strictly a performer? And, you know, where were you in your path as a theater artist? Well, the short answer is I came in as an actor. I think ever since I was a little kid, I had this, I don't know, like this weight of feeling like it was my responsibility, whatever it was, you know, like saving the world. It was my, at five, I remember like feeling that burden of that there's a calling to help people or I don't even, couldn't even articulate it, of course. And then as I went, got ready for college, I had done some leadership stuff, you know, with like, like much like Heidi Schreck, I had done some American Legion oratory contests and I had gone to girls state and girls nation. And I really thought that I was going to be a poli sci major, go to law school and be in public office. Like that's, that's what I thought you had to do if you felt called to be of service. And then when I started doing theater in college, um, Grant McKerney, brilliant professor said to his theater, it was either intro to theater or it was theater and culture. But he said, when we want to understand a culture, we look back at their drama and we look at what they were arguing about. What were they dissecting on stage? What were their ethics? What were they morally examining? And he said, theater artists are the high priests of their society. And, you know, I just, I just like sat right up because I thought, oh, so I could take my hobby and I could make that my service in some way. So that was always sort of in the back of my head. And I think so that by the time I was asked to join the company, Um, after the first trip that Tectonic Theater Project made to Laramie, Wyoming. I had been working with head writer Lee Fondakowski on her uh, play, where I was a divisor, but not a contributing playwright. And her play was called I Think I Like Girls, and it was based on interviews with lesbians around the country. And so I think a lot of the impulse to go to Laramie was sort of born out of, you know, it was the Anna DeVere Smith kind of era of, of that kind of work being a solo process or Mark Wolf's another American asking and telling based on interviews with people in the military. And Moises said, well, what if we went to Laramie and examined what, what's happening there around the death of Matthew Shepard? So they had done that trip. And then someone else uh, was supposed to be in the room devising and she got a better job. In, in air quotes better, but um, she, she got asked to replace somebody in an off-Broadway play. So I love when I get an opportunity because somebody else moved up, you know, rather than them having some kind of tragedy. Um, so, you know, and that's often how things happen. I say all that because I knew when I was asked to be in that room that that was the room I had been waiting to get into in New York. 
And so I had to move a bunch of stuff around in my life to be full-time in a rehearsal room. And I was just in awe of the way the company talked to each other, the, the, the way they were hashing things out, the, just the intelligence of everybody in the room and the humor. And I was really impressed how much dissent Moises could take in the room. I like to think I was, you know, a, a very polite new beginner, but Moises says I was never like that. So <laughs> he says I was always harassing him from day one. <laughs> so what, I'm curious, because you just talked about how it was different and it really, you, you felt that calling. So what specifically was different about being in that room versus rooms you had been in prior to that moment? Well, I wanted to make work about social themes, about things that mattered in the real world. And up until then, um, I had gotten enough um, positive feedback to think, oh, I'm going to go to New York and it's a matter of time before I'm Meryl Streep, you know, and I um, and then when I encountered roadblocks when I got to New York, then I started um, trying to create my own work. I was also um, an artistic associate with New George's, which is a theater company in New York that does new work by women. And you were nobody at that company if you weren't making your own work. So I kind of had to become a creator out of necessity. So I often think if, you know, you know, for your young listeners out there, all the obstacles actually uh, help you hone your craft. You're either going to take more dance classes or more singing lessons, or you're going to learn to create your own work or make your own podcast. Because if you don't, there are other people who are, who are going to be able to take that initiative. And you learn about okay, if I'm going to do all this, why am I doing it? Why does it matter? And I think that can, the why can change throughout your life. Um, so I definitely, even in the early days of the Laramie Project, I was like, oh, good, I'm, I'm finally going to be in something people are going to see and care about. And I did get an agent because of being in that show. And so then I got to be on you know, a handful of the um, usual suspects on TV, the Law & Order, SVU, that kind of thing. Um, so I got to tick some of those boxes, and it's still like, it's just never linear, right? You think, oh, all this has happened now, you know, ABC happened now, the rest of the alphabet is going to happen. And it, it just doesn't work that way. But I, I do feel that um, all the devising that I've been doing, co-authoring the book with Moises, I, I do feel like this is the work that I'm meant to be doing. And now I have enough experience that I can lead a room. And I, I kind of think that, um, you know, Mary, back to your question about, you know, divisors and directors participating and designers. I do think that moment work kind of turns you into a, a director lead divisor. <laughs> you, you end up really wanting to craft the work once you get your hands around it. Some people do it and they're like, they, you know, they dip their toe in and they're like, wow, I never want to do that again. And I always say that is a totally legit outcome for you. Like if that's what you've discovered, like I don't want to work in this ensemble way. I don't like not knowing what's going to happen at rehearsal. You know, so when I lead a devising room, <laughs> I try to start on time and end on time because everything in between is at your constant. <laughs> exactly. So I try to have snacks, you know, I try to I try to take care of everybody in the room to the degree that I can. We're going to circle back to the snacks later, I promise. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> So as a lead divisor, so I'm not as familiar. I've never personally experienced 
a device theater from the inside. So I'm I like my imagination is just running right now. And even when I was just obviously doing some reading on it, I was <clears throat> my mind was just, you know, running a thousand miles a minute. So as a lead divisor, do you have like you you go in like strictly not having any idea of what kind of pro- obviously the product you're not really sure of, but do you have an idea of the process you want to take or is it purely just getting in the room with those individuals and just going? Well, again, I think a lot of different companies use different uh, starting points. Um, There's a company in Great Britain called Frantic Assembly, and they're very movement-driven. They give incredible devising workshops, and a lot of their stuff will start with, here's a piece of music. When Moises had the hunch for his play, 33 Variations, um, he got really captivated by the question, why would a composer make 33 vi- variations of this same little waltz tune? And then a whole play was devised from that central question. So when we, when we tectonic, when I say we, I mean sort of tectonic, and then the various creative collabs that I've had since then, when we come into a room, there's usually a pretty strong hunch, you know, like, I'll just go ahead and talk about um, my current project here too. Um, hashtag here too. When I went to the March for Our Lives in New York, I just got that tingly feeling up the back of my spine that was very similar to that feeling of this is a lightning rod moment, just like the murder of Matthew Shepard was a lightning rod moment. It was a moment in the culture that brought people together across, you know, a lot of different intersectional um, backgrounds that began, I think, sort of, you know, the advances that we have seen in um, the struggle for equality. And so I was feeling that same way. And so my initial thought was, well, I should go down and interview the Parkland students. And this is sort of a sidebar. I, we often will like pose formal questions, you know, like, uh, um, because one of, I think, the outcomes when the play is well-structured, um, you know, like I'm not a fan of devised work that I can't, that's so hermetic, I don't know what's going on. I have no patience for that. But if you're figuring out the content as you're figuring out the form, then the theatricality is going to be so baked in that rather than like, oh, I've written all the words and now I'm going to figure out, you know, the, the sexiest way to dress this up. But so you're figuring out like, oh, this moment is going to be served by direct address. Oh, no, this moment is going to be better served by uh, a projection. This moment is going to be better served um, by silhouette. You know, like you're finding that all out in the room and then you don't overwrite because you're relying on the other elements. So with here, too, my initial I had this formal question in the back of my head from watching high school students do the Laramie project over the last 20 years and seeing how switched on they get like, you know, because they were rarely called to think about such important social themes. And they know it's the, the words of real people. And they see, even though that happened 20 years ago, the struggles that we're still having. So it's always so meaningful to me. And so my formal question in the back of my mind forever has been how could I create another project like the Laramie project that also gives students the chance to be generative? Because the other thing I love about teaching devising is that I'm teaching people how to be generative rather than um, interpretive, right? Like I, I only had the kind of um, tear you down to build you up acting, you know, curriculum when I was in college. And it was all about like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I don't, my singing voice isn't good enough. I'm never going to be a dancer. I'm, you know, and, and trying to hone all those skills. 
Um, but no one ever talked to me about, you know, generating uh, my own work, unless it was in sort of a, a writer, you know, like I had to write a creative thesis. So you know, I did learn how to put my thoughts together, but not in necessarily in a theatrical creative way. So when I started working on Here Too, the hunch was, oh, there's something in the, the narrative of these Parkland students that needs to be its own play. But then as I started working on it with my co-creator, Jimmy Mays, um, another Tectonic um, colleague, we realized quickly, there. well, A, we didn't want to go down there and take something from them. I think that's another thing that we've learned over time with interview-based theater is that unless you're being co-intentional with your interviewees, you know, it can't be a, I'm going to come down and appropriate your story. You know, it has, it really, there needs to be a kind of um, back and forth with your interviewees. And we did go down there and offer them a workshop because we wanted to offer them something rather than take their stories. You know what I mean? And even by the time we had met um, their theater teacher, Melody, and uh, worked with some of the kids uh, while we were down there, the Santa Fe, Texas shooting happened. And so it was, you know, just upsetting and it was a terrible time. And we just got to create with them. They were, we were like, do you want to talk about what just happened in Texas? They were like, can we just do some fun stuff? <laughs> so that's what we did. It was really sweet. And so when we started developing the piece, we were at a residency called The Orchard Project in Saratoga Springs. And we were working with college students all over the country and they kept saying, oh, do you know what's happening in Baltimore? Oh, I have a friend who's a, a gun sense activist in Texas. She held the vigil after that Santa Fe, Texas shooting. And so we realized, oh, yes, use the scaffold of March for Our Lives, all the different activist uh, events. But, you know, let's interview the unheralded activists all around the country. So that's an ongoing process now of meeting. And now it's sort of, you know, uh, at Penn State, my students there, because of COVID, they actually did a Black Lives Matter Penn State State College activist podcast. So you can find that Here Too podcast on Apple. It's hashtag Here Too or Spotify, or you can go straight to um, Buzzsprout. And there you can find our Patreon page. Um, so hashtag Here Too, they interviewed uh, some incredible high school and college age activists. So here too continues to evolve. And the idea is, you know, someday Jimmy and I will write the hashtag here to play. You can license that. But we also hope people will use the open source portal that we're developing of all the interviews so that each community can say, we, we're going to use as a basis the version from Penn State, but we're going to swap in some local content. So that way they don't have to devise the whole play. It took us a year and a half to write the Laramie Project. You know, so in the, the time period allotted, they can have a little bit of a chance to be generative. So that was a long answer, but that's that's sort of how it's my my sense of devising has evolved. I want it to really, um, I want to make it easier for people to make good work because you end up spending all your time either gathering source material and then no time to put it together, or you don't have enough of a structure to pin it to. So the, the whole thing can feel um, like those skits on Saturday Night Live, those high school skits they do with the clocks and the blue light and the, you know, in your face stuff. Like, you know, that's not what I'm going for. <laughs> I'm wondering if there was a time in the industry that you've noticed where there was a switch in college programs or programs in general for performing and creating theater 
uh, started to encourage their students to make their own work. Devising, the, even the name of it, that really has its origins um, back in Great Britain with Carol Churchill and Joint Stock Company. Uh, so she was working that way, you know, as early as the 70s. And then in New York, of course, there were things like happenings, you know, where you'd show up and things would just happen. <laughs> um, and yeah, Moises says in the foreword of the book that, you know, when he was studying at NYU in the experimental theater wing, um, you know, he was studying with Mary Overly, the inventor of the viewpoints, which really came out of a dance discipline. And then Ann Bogart and um, Tina Landau, who's, who sort of further codified it for the theater and said, well, there's nine viewpoints, actually. There's viewpoints of time and viewpoints of space. Um, so, you know, he was steeped in all of all of that and seeing plays at the Worcester Group and... Um, so that that all was definitely happening, you know, late 60s, 70s, 80s. And for a while, uh, you know, the we call it the tyrant text. Text was sort of demonized and thrown out. And Moises really loved all the experimentation he was seeing, but he's so story-driven. That's sort of, you know, the, the legacy that I feel like we've all inherited and even calling it devised theater. When we made the Laramie project in the year 2000, we weren't calling it that. And I remember um, a friend of mine did one of the first high school productions of the Laramie project and took it to Edinburgh. And I was with her and, and then that show got picked up our high school production to be the Laramie project premiere in great Britain in uh, well, in London, I should say. Um, and uh, when I would describe to people, you know, what I was doing there and they would, I would you know, say it's based on interviews and talk about the subject matter, the Brits would say, so, so it's rather like a devised piece. And I would be like, oh, okay. You know, like that, we weren't even calling it that. I, I'm sure there were, there have been um, communities, you know, that have been doing like Augusta Boal and Theater of the Oppressed. And I think especially if you're in, um, you know, let's call it a marginalized community where, you look at the the canon of plays and you don't see yourself reflected, you might decide to lean more toward making devised theater. I mean, again, that's, that's what I really love about it is, you know, when I was in college, I played Juliet and Lydia Languish and, and uh, Perdita. And so I felt like, Oh, I'm, I'm the prototypical sort of, um, you know, ingenue, and then as soon as I got out of college, it was really clear, no, there are a lot of people who are more ingenue than you. But I wasn't quite a character actor either. You know, I still, I still, uh, you know, I wasn't heavy and I wasn't funny looking, but I was just sort of average. So I, I, I really think that um, devising has sort of democratized, you know, who, who gets to see themselves on stage. And the other thing, like for somebody who wants to dip their toe in or if any professors are listening, I worked with Christine Young, um, who teaches in San Francisco, and I call her my feminist rehearsal thought partner. And so when I'm devising, this gets back to the snacks too, making sure when you're devising that you have mini showings like once a week, you invite people in and say, this is what we're exploring this week in our devising. Because if you're devising with students, chances are it's a lot of the students who don't normally see themselves cast in the quote unquote main stage show. So 
they may not have as much experience performing. And so then not only are they performing a show that has never won a Tony award, they are, you know, scared to death of performing in general. And then the fact that they don't know if what they made is any good. <laughs> so it's kind of important to think of devising as a way to bring your community together more often than not, not just waiting for opening night. I think you have to be really clear if you share your work early, um, what you want from your audience. You know, like Moises will often say, what you're about to see is not a play. It's not even a first draft of a play. It's a collection of moments. And we'd love to hear some feedback on, you know, and he might even frame a few questions or give a little bit of background information or give none. If you don't want to, if you want to have what we call Joe X, like if Joe X walks in here, can they make sense of what we've made in some way or another? Um, but really more what I'm talking about uh, is giving your divisors a chance to perform and recover and make more work and perform again. Like maybe you invite the designers in if they're not part of your process. Maybe you invite some other faculty. Maybe you ask everybody to bring a friend. But that you do enough sharing along the way that it doesn't feel like a complete freak out when you have to put the whole thing together in front of an audience. That's when I, 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 I experience what I call the mutiny days when they all start thinking she doesn't know what she's doing and <laughs> we have to have a mutiny. <laughs> Do you think an education in journalism aids in device theater? When I think of device theater and just based on this conversation alone, I just think with the interviews and I even sidebarring just for a minute with with our podcast there's a certain level of like a journalistic um mm -hmm. mindset that you almost have to have and so i'm wondering as you're pre prepping those interviews or actually doing those interviews conducting those interviews with with the people with um down in florida or out um in laramie do you think having a, a background or an education in journalism helps helps that process well one of the things that i think gave us a lot of um, trust in Laramie is that we had no idea what we were doing. So the, the media had arrived as soon as um, they learned of Matthew Shepard's attack. So if you remember back, he stayed in a coma in the hospital for four nights. So there was a lot of time for the media to follow the story, to learn more about the perpetrators. Um, and they started doing really kind of shitty things like uh, interviewed a drunk outside a bar who was just like collapsed on the side of the street. Like, what do you think of what happened? Like, can you imagine if they did that in your town? You'd be like, that does not represent us. So they, they really got a black eye from the media who came in, got their sound bites and left. And then a month later, in stroll 10 members of Tectonic Theater Project and camp out for 10 days. And, uh, you know, we started where we knew it would be warm in the theater department. <laughs> and from there, people introduced us. So, you know, it was a warm, you know, a sales term, a warm market, you know, often. There was very little sort of like going out and trying to talk to people without some form of introduction. I think I could be wrong about that because I wasn't on the first trip. So I don't know how various company members found their interviewees. So in that case, I think the naivete, and we tried to reflect that in the writing, you know, like making ourselves narrators of the piece, and it kind of becomes one culture exchanging with another culture. And initially, you know, the New York Times review was not get out your checkbook, run, don't walk. It was, it was, you know, tempered. It was like, well, Anna DeVere Smith does this better, or 
um, you know, probably said a bunch of good things. And as is typical, I only remember the bad things. Um, but, you know, cut to now, they, they had another piece that came out, the 25 most important plays since Angels in America. And the Laramie Project is on that list, you know. So they didn't help us keep the show running off Broadway at the time. But um, they have acknowledged that it's it's been a really meaningful piece for a really long time now. I do think, though, that we could get away with that then and now. And not all device play has to be based on interviews, not remotely. But if that is happening now, there's a lot more uh, sophistication and sensitivity around who can tell whose story. You know, and I'm finding that a lot with my students, that they, they don't want to appropriate anyone else's culture um, just super, super um, respectful and mindful. Um, I just, I love working with young people. I think it really, uh, it forces me to really examine, you know, my 50 years of learned behavior and um, status quo and question things. Sometimes it's a big pain in the butt, but it's worth, it's always worth doing. So now I think you have to be and I want to be, you know, as I said, much more two-way street with my interviewees and with my divisors, you know, that I don't like to run a room where I'm the, you know, the, the be-all, end-all. And often my divisors are coming up with, I may have come in with the hunch, but they are making moments that I could never conceive of, you know. So that's the other thing I really love about it is that I don't need to know all the answers. We're going to figure it out together. How do you get in a room? What are the first uh, What are the first things you do with your students to get them on the same page as you, or or in the classroom? Are you also like when you're in a rehearsal room trying to play off the strengths of those individuals and then moving on from there? I think every hunch that you come into the devising process with sort of demands a, a unique starting point. Um, I devised with. Uh, a moment work teacher, playwright, writer friend, her name's Mina Samuels, and she had studied acting in France and they were using some real, you know, kind of chestnut speeches like um, some Shakespeare and uh, some um, like Mary Stuart, you know, about Mary Queen of Scots and, and Elizabeth. Uh, some just some really kind of dusty old material, um, Lucretia Borgia from Victor Hugo's Lucrece. And, but she, as she was looking at these old texts, she thought these queens from literature have something to say to each other and something to say to us. And so we just got in a room, four of us, and we thought about what would queens have. And then each of us was sort of the dramaturg of one of the plays and we thought about, okay, what are some objects and, and other things that might be in the world of this play? And we would really just make non-text moments. And we brought that to the Orchard Project as well one year and devised mostly with a female ensemble, a couple of dudes, but female identified primarily because it was a play for 10 women. And some of the non-text moments they made ended up in the final piece. And in this particular devised piece, it was really important to her that she be called the playwright. So, you know, some of that you have to kind of negotiate up front. You know, she wanted to be the playwright. And I said, okay, then on the title page, I want to be called lead divisor. 
you know, so, so it's, it really changes kind of your relationship to it. And I ended up directing the first production of that play. And what I did in, in the room with my students, the play was mostly written. It was really overwritten. So a lot of what we did was keep chipping away at it so that it was just what had to be in there for the story to hang together and make sense. So most of the devising I did in that process with my students was movement driven. And I had an incredible choreographer who was on staff there. And, uh, you know, like I would, I would, I would even think as the director with the clock ticking toward production, Mina would say, well, can she, she wasn't there all the time, but when she came, she said, well, could we, do you think we could do some devising with the gloves today? Because we had done all these incredible moments with gloves that could be used for sound. And they made this like dish gloves, like fancy dish gloves that also looked kind of like they were made of like fancy queen material. So we were kind of playing with that sort of domestic versus regal quality of seeing a woman wearing gloves. And, and I, in my head, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be a waste of two hours of rehearsal. And it unlocked so much of the piece working, even though it hadn't made its way into the scripted version in her mind, we were still going to do something with those moments. And you know, there were there were a bunch of different things like that that we could make moments of, and then I could sequence the moments to come up with a movement sequence that was moving the action forward in the play. So that's how, like for example, that particular um, structure worked out in devising. So looking at today's climate and your work in universities, you know all over. How is the digital component that we are kind of now forced into? How does that how does device theater work within that or how are you how I mean I'm sure that was a hurdle at first mm-hmm. when you first got when you first started doing that in the digital landscape. So I'm curious as to like how did you work through that and then how are you using it today? Uh, I'm actually really busy and I think partly because you know universities especially are struggling to figure out how to keep their students engaged and um, devising. Weirdly enough, you can do, I can teach the moment work process and we can work on our individual screens and we can put people into breakout rooms. So one person can be kind of directing the person who's exploring something because it's hard to explore a prop, but also keep your eye on your screen. So the person who's watching can kind of you know, be saying, oh, that was cool. Oh, do that again. Oh, that's the most interesting thing you did. So to a point, you know, we could really uh, help people understand what the process is like. And then as soon as you get to the more, um, you know, moments can start out very simple. They might be, you know, and just for your listeners, moment work is a simple construct where you say, I begin, something happens, could be as simple as a gesture. Uh, a walk across the stage, a piece of text, something simple, one element of the stage. Uh, and then you say, I end. And whatever is between those brackets, if I begin, I end, is your moment. And then moments can become quite elaborate uh, where you might have, okay, the sound is going to start after the person starts walking across the stage and then the lights are going to flicker. And then, you know, so you can really score a moment with many elements of the stage and that gets tricky to do in your room by yourself to operate sound and lights and be the body in the mo- in the moment as well. So, you know, for example, at Drew, we're using the confines of the Zoom screen as part of the hunch, you know, and figuring out like, okay, you know, this is about people who are confined 
and um, telling stories. And so it's kind of looking at the nature of why we tell stories. And then uh, the stories that they focused on, we discovered there's sort of a common hunch of monstrous women. (laughs) Why do we tell stories where women are monsters like Medusa or, you know, so, so that'll be fun to figure out how then to create that over Zoom. A friend of mine, Lucy Tabergian, brilliant director, she's French. And so she started a, a Moliere in the Park in Prospect Park. And they did Tartuffe over Zoom. And they used uh, a kind of, you know, channel changer software where they could put up a background and then sort of float the heads of everybody in the scene. And I think that it got, see, it had some famous people in it, like Samira Wiley playing Tartuffe. Oh, I did see that. You yes. That? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I didn't get to see the the performance, but I did see that it was happening. Yeah. And I think something like, I might be getting this wrong, but I think it was something like 40,000 people saw it. And you think how many production, how many performances in the park you'd have to do and how much, I mean, it's not great for the actors because, you know, they're, we're not, if we're not performing every week, we're not getting paid every week. But, um, you know, so I think there can be a way in which uh, this current moment can help us all um, connect with each other in a, in a kind of perverse way. It's might have some positive silver lining. So I was really prepared to just wait it out and do nothing, but the world is demanding that we continue <laughs> our craft. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I really think that we're going to, coming out of this, we're, I think we'll have learned so much that we don't even realize now. Um, and I think that whole uh, idea of like the connection, I think will be, I hope at least will be so much greater when we get back to, you know, live theater where we're, we're right next to somebody and we can, you know, touch them. Like, oh my gosh. Well, even, you know, you only have to see a handful of shows to know that sometimes talking about theater is more fun than actually going to see theater. (laughs) You know, so so it gives us all a chance to talk about how much we love theater. Right. at, um, At Penn State this summer, you know, if the COVID situation wasn't going on, we would be preparing, we would have been preparing to, we had a bunch of interns at um, Penn State this summer who were doing things like cleaning up old interviews and making sure, you know, that they were sort of ready to go into this open source portal. Um, and then, you know, the Black Lives Matter stuff kicked off and it was really vibrant at State College. And so they wanted to pivot and um, interview those activists. So now here too, the platform of, you know, my baby is now that much bigger. Like this first season of the podcast is state college, but, you know, there can be um, a here to, you know, Chicago or a here to um, Texas or, you know, and, and continue doing the podcast and talking to the activists from all these different communities. I mean, I've only scratched the surface of how much youth activism and going on. And then we can, you know, right now we were focused on gun violence, but if I had started a year later, it might've been stories of youth activism, stories of climate change, you know, like that, that, uh, young people are really, um, creating this incredible shift and, I just, you know, I just want to amplify that however I can. And there's a multitude of, you know, avenues 
with the, with your platform, which I think is amazing. And I'm going to be putting the link oh, great. to hashtag here too in the description notes for anyone who um, wants to take a look. We highly encourage it. I have one more question before we get to our lightning round. Oh dear. <laughs> what do you think is a common misperception of that people might have of devised theater? I think people assume it will be easier than writing a play. I have seen some really amazing playwrights make terrible devised theater, and I'm not naming any names, but it's really it really frustrates me because I, you know, like I I have deviser friends who call themselves playwrights. I don't really think of myself as a playwright. I think of myself more as an aggregator. Um, uh, and I have written a play, you know, because. I thought I was being called in to devise a play with students and it became clear they just wanted me to write the fall school play. <laughs> so I have done it. But, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for people who can just make stuff up, make up characters. And, you know, those then they become so real that you, when you're performing, you're like, well, I don't think my character would never do that. Or my character is, you know, like, like they're real people. So I have great respect for that. Um, but I think there are some people who think, oh, I'm going to just try my, I'm just going to try devising. And then they should, but you know, it's not going to be easier. At least it's not going to be easier to make something that, um, not that every piece needs to stand the test of time or, you know, it, it could just be something that pops off and is brilliant and, you know, never gets seen again. It's one of the things I love about moment work is you make hundreds of moments and it's really a way to sketch in the rehearsal room. You don't want to get too precious about them because you don't know, you don't know if they're going to be useful or not. Um, so it's a lot of discovering and letting go, discovering and letting go. Uh, so, you know, sometimes there's tears, like it's really devising is fun, but it can also be really hard and stressful. Like it's, it's a really rigorous process. I think if you're, if you're doing it right, you know, I, I, I don't credit myself as being one of the, um, I was an actor dramaturg on the Laramie project. And then there were several people in the cast and Lee Fondakowski and our amazing dramaturg, Steve Wong, who were really in the room hashing out what should be in the play and what shouldn't be in the play. Um, which could be alarming when they would show up at the next rehearsal with some of your favorite stuff cut. But, uh, the more I've seen it over the years and um, listened to other uh, of the people who were in the writing room talk about it, I realized, oh, that play is incredibly well structured. <laughs> um, and so I think people think of Tectonic as a theater for social change because of the Laramie Project and some of the other, um, you know, activist kind of oriented work, like I Am My Own Wife or um, uh, Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde. But if you think of the word tectonic, really tectonic makes you think of tectonic plates or architecture. So the, 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 the theater company really came together to challenge and question form. Um, and so I think one of the reasons that devised piece uh, is enduring is not just that it's a heartbreaking story and an incredible story of a community, but the way the thing is put together is, is quite well structured. So this lightning round that we do is kind of just just that lightning. We won't really respond or, you know, go too much into your responses. It's just, you know, whatever comes to mind. <laughs> so our first 
first question is <laughs> so good. Mary loves this one. What is one thing in the theater industry that confuses you? This is what confuses me about theater. Why is it so inhumane? Why is a thing that is about empathy and um, connection so fucking inhumane so much of the time? And I'm so happy to see the We See You White American Theater and uh, to see, you know, a moment where people are stepping down from jobs somewhat, you know, and trying to make more space for other people and, um, and, you know, not being trained the way I was trained up, which is you're a piece of shit and we're going to remold you. You know, (laughs) why, why is theater so inhumane? What are three adjectives that describe your favorite working environment? Mm, Hilarious, meaningful, on my feet. Is there something about your process that you would find unique to you? I guess the snacks come to mind. Okay, then then I'll I'll, I'll move a little ahead. What is your favorite rehearsal snack? Um, <laughs> it was another lightning round question. <laughs> well, if I'm left to my own devices and the vending machine, I'll always go for a Snickers. Uh, but now if I'm providing the snacks to my students, I have so many gluten-free students, vegan students that, um, you know, I have to find the snacks that will be more inclusive. Some nuts, some clementines, um, some gluten-free pretzels. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> I have to say, the reason I put that question in here uh, for this this one is because whenever... I was doing a rehearsal with Ellen. She would always be very into the snacks in rehearsal. We would constantly bring snacks for each other. So it was a very important part of our rehearsal process. And she just she just does that because that's who she is. She's Trader always, Joe's. Always been this. Well, and like the baker. She just, she's always baking those, you know, those little cookies, the, the um, chocolate chip cookies that are mini stars. Oh, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. ready chocolate. I know exactly which ones. In, yep. And her molasses she, crinkles. and We had her over last week to our new ha- house, and she brought us some nice loaves of pumpkin, chocolate chip pumpkin bread and tahini shortbread cookies, which we're to die it. for. Yeah, oh, amazing. I'm great. just really hungry. I know. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think of it as a very feminist act to make sure people feel cared for in rehearsal. What is one hobby you have outside? Of- I love gardening. I love flowers. I don't think you can you can see that those back there. Those are dried hydrangeas. But right now, I probably have like there's a farmers market near me, and um, I go there almost every day. And I'm I call myself um, the flower piggy. <laughs> I always buy all the cut flowers. <laughs> uh, what is one job in the theater industry that you would change jobs with for one week? Trade jobs with for one week. Costume design. Oh, I want to ask why, but we can't. <laughs> um, 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 what is the scariest moment that you've had on stage? Uh, there was one time in the Laramie Project off Broadway, and this is back in the you know Iron Age when TVs were still big three-dimensional objects. And so we said the media descended and five TVs came down on little trolleys and the trolleys were kind of unstable and they would kind of swing. And then one of the, one of them like came down unevenly and fell off its trolley and hung and like smashed as it dropped from its safety cable. Oh, so that was pretty scary. Uh, Yeah. 
<laughs> I did not cover. I turned up stage and put my hands over my mouth. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And then Mercedes Herrero, God bless her, just went, Laramie, Wyoming, the gem city of the plains. And we just, and then we were like, okay, that's what we're doing. And we all just kept, kept going. Wow. <laughs> and our final question is, what's the last great piece of theater that you saw? I'm sure there was one after this, but the first thing that popped in my head was Hadestown. I feel like you see a hundred shows hoping to see Hadestown. It was like everything, such a great story, like in community with their audience from, from the first scene to the epilogue, um, incredibly beautifully staged. Um, yeah, just, just it, uh, that tear that uh, we, why we build the wall song. Mm, God, like, and she wrote that before the moment that we're in right now. So that play had everything for me. This was so nice. Thank you so much, Barb, yeah, for coming I hope on. You, can, you know, snip it so that I don't sound like such a windbag. Oh, no. No, no, no. We're keeping no. those full responses. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It, it truly is. Because, for like I said earlier, like, I've never, I've seen Device Theater, I've never been someone who's dev- like helped devise a piece of theater so hearing your yeah. your process has been truly enlightening so th- thank you yeah thanks for asking thanks everyone for listening to this episode of page to stage to keep up with us you can find us on instagram and facebook at page to stage podcast and if you're enjoying these conversations we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast until next time that's brian that's mary we'll see you later bye Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.